Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Patreon edition of the No Country Podcast, soon to be the only edition of the No Country Podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sagnison. Chris, how are you doing this evening? You know, I'm doing better than, than how I started the day, and I, I do have three quotations that I want to jump into uh, very briefly um, because I think they're so cool, and then there... It, there's kind of some dark water ahead uh, for this episode, but I, I think that we've prepared listeners. Um, the first quotation is from John Donne, who I think is one of the greatest poets in the English language, and I, I think this is inspiring. He said, Death is an ascent to a better library. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Little Johnny Keats, uh, who uh, coughed up blood on the Spanish steppes in Rome and died far too young, one of our first great rock stars of poetry, described Shakespeare in terms of circumnavigation of the soul. I, I just I think that's a beautiful line for someone who you know really left this plane of existence at only 24. I think he gave us some great work. Uh, I love that line, and I think that's uh, a powerful thing to remember about the tradition that all writers and thinkers are working in. Uh, Shakespeare, as many people might know, contributed more uh, new words to English English language than any other individual, and I think that idea of circumnavigation of the soul is really cool. The final one is from a writer that I think many of our listeners would be familiar with, and I'm personally trying to uh, resuscitate a little bit because I think he did get overexposed, uh, and I'm speaking of Joseph Campbell, but I think he did a lot to inspire some of the interests that David and I take very seriously in terms of a new anthropology, uh, an approach that, that mingles uh, literature, religion, science into the larger idea of culture. And one of, he, one of his lines is, you are that mystery you are seeking to know. So I wanted to kick off tonight's episode uh, with those inspiring words uh, to remind people that David has been given five new words to somehow intermingle two of them into this conversation. And I have again prepared uh, a kind of a special uh, imaginative challenge for him. Let's go. If he's ready. I'm ready. All right. Well, as I think people would be aware of, David uh, is a publisher as well as an author. His company is called Broken River, and I thought rivers are cool, um, and they're a good starting point. So, Mr. Osborne, I want you to imagine that you are a river guide. You can be on the Colorado River, you can be in Big Bend, you could be somewhere that you might know of in Oklahoma. But you have three. Why three? Because it's more than two and less than four. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of the magic ideas. You have three guests on a river rafting trip. You have an immediate gut instinct that one of those people is a problem. Mm -hmm. What you were asked to do is to, at the end of this episode, to give us an idea of who these three people are what the problem was, and where it happened on the river. I want people to think about rivers are are really good organizing principles, you know. If you knew the history of the 10 major world rivers, you would know a great deal about the entire human story. So, any questions? No, I got it. Okay. All right. Three people, one river, your choice. And we will go on. We will go on because I'm excited. Uh, and we do have a great Halloween episode coming up in our... This, that will be kind of the wrap-up of, of the free segment. I'm going to share a ghost story of my own. Um, and I think, you know, it'll be really cool. But we're going to move forward from strength to strength behind the paywall because... Well, frankly, we think we're worth it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I uh, just a little uh, update over here. I got a payout for my totaled car uh, market value. So it's all good. That's good. That's all good. It's it's what I paid for it, nineteen five. So uh, I might actually be looking at a cheaper car. And maybe pocketing a little bit of change. So there you go. So yeah, there that's go. that's all good. It's it's all well and good. How are how are things over where you're at? I know you're experiencing some issues with new neighbors that you've brought up on the show before, and I'm interested in yeah. how that's developing. Well, it, look, it, it frankly is stressful. I, I think these people can be defined in very simple terms as uh, as criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, they inherited uh, the downstairs place because of a death. The good news is that I have a lovely um, female Chinese neighbor who is uh, kind of in my age range, and, and we're sort of bonding about this issue. We both are uh, full-scale owners. Uh, we're not going to get intimidated by these people. This is not the first time I've dealt with uh, criminal people in my life. Uh, but it is different at this age. Um, and I, I think that the attitude in the community is, is one of uh, understanding, support. Uh, this is an, a very integrated community. It's, it's, we've got 11 different first language speakers here. We've got every race and age. So it, I think... It's going to be okay, but it is uh, a little tense. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to hear. I have had my share of bad neighbors as well. When I moved from El Paso, it was a big relief because the folks who moved across the hall from us had parties every night and smoked weed on the balcony. And I, It's hard to say that I really have a place to care about that kind of stuff especially at the time because i didn't have a child considering how many parties i've been to where i smoked mm-hmm. weed on a balcony 
But right. you get to this certain point in your life and you just want your home to be a sanctuary and you don't want people to be having huge parties. And I'm assuming that's what's going on. There's some kind of noise issue that's 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 bothering you or well there's no first of all there are too many people down i mean this is not um my my condo is about uh, 1200 square feet and i think that the people downstairs there are six full-grown adults coming and going there are interstate plates uh it just seems very funky you know and, and not in a good way uh the noise yeah, it's more that, that there's uh, shouting mm-hmm. and door slamming and there's a tension in the air that just no one needs, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, really. Right. Um, right. But I, I think it'll be cool. And I, look, I, I think that at least one of these people is, is simply not long out of prison and just doesn't know how to deal with freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think... It's on that level. Yeah. Um, but it's a good reminder. You know, when I was in Australia, I had, um, in rural Australia, I had a third generation Irish family uh, as my nearest neighbor, basically a rifle shot away. And they were serious, serious uh, criminals. I mean, they were, they were stealing agricultural equipment, road, you know, machinery, and... The moment I really realized that, you know, I'm going to have to deal with them, they became cool neighbors because they did not want any problems, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They, they always had somebody in prison, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, I, I, I didn't intend to do this, but I, I was gone for two months and I forgot to lock my door. And, of course, everything was fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. That's so the thing, yeah. It, if it, you can manage to befriend people like that, it's... Uh... It's a good look because they tend to, you don't shit where you eat, uh, for the exactly. most for the most part, and it's a problem. But that's the thing is that it's a problem when you get neighbors who do shit where they eat, because yeah. those people are closer to animals than than, than people. Um, I mean, even animals don't shit where they eat. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think, and I think this is something that is. Uh... Whether, I mean, whatever cause that you might attribute to it, I think it is something that is escalating. Um, and it, you, you feel it instantly. People come in from another world and they don't recognize community. Uh, we've got uh, quite a, a number of young black couples who have really worked hard to, to get into this community and people are just trying to get along you know so so you really feel it when somebody is kind of a barbarian yeah know? right right exactly can we all just be cool is that too much to ask you know it shouldn't be it, sh- it really shouldn't be isn't it? but you know i guess that i'm um, it's a reminder that you can never take anything for granted, you know, you really can't. You just got to be looking around you. You've got to bring the joy, bring your good vibe, um, not be swayed or or be forced to swerve because, uh, you know, someone's just an idiot, basically. Um, 
and I think there, you know, you can always say there's a kind of mental illness problem with any people who are inherently violent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so just rocking and rolling, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the many, many good neighbors. There are about 200 um, people in my immediate community, and it really is pretty cool. So n- no problems. That's a good attitude. So, language as paranoia. You told me that you had more thoughts on this subject, and I'm interested to hear and contribute my own thoughts. So tell me, Chris, where are we going with this language as paranoia idea? Okay. All right. I I think this really is an important advancement of our idea of the ghost radio signal of how language... Uh, essentially blew up human consciousness and created human consciousness. We talked in an earlier episode about did humanity begin in terror of the world or in delight at existence? And then we said, well, language begins with an idea of some people can understand it, family, clan, tribe, some people can't. That's the, that is where the concept of language began. So I, I've, I've got a little bit of a curveball coming up because the other big thing that's happened to me, uh, and I don't think it's going to go well, but I'm still grateful for it, is that uh, I realize that uh, five years ago, I, I met a woman who I really did fall in love with and some of our listeners would know that we talk about George Lakoff and Mark Johnson's idea of the concreteness of, of metaphor you know falling in love that that really doesn't seem like a wise idea does it I don't want to fall down um, but I, I have to accept that and I, I think it really has been a, a life-changing experience I don't think it is going to turn out well Um, But it has made me think about the nature of language, that the complexity of men and women on intimate terms, I think that has had an enormous amount to do with the growth and really the explosion of language. Because you think about it, it is a kind of combat there's no question. We have the idea of the war between the sexes for a reason. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's a tricky, tricky business. And yet, on the other hand, there's the idea of pillow talk and intimacy and sharing at a very deep level. And there are so many games going on. And the whole idea of a game is itself a very interesting uh, language and concept idea. So I, I'm wondering if part of the language as paranoia paradigm didn't start with the complexity of love. Hmm. What do you think about that? that? Well, if you think of their needing of, of language arising in the face of needing to pin something down, that makes a lot of sense. I suppose anger in its own way does as well, because anger can be this roaming, complex thing. But love is much more complicated than that. 
So I think that if we think of language as an attempt to crystallize into simple letters and words and sounds, complex feelings, attempting to do something like that with, with love makes sense to me. Well, think about, you know, it has so much to do with some of the, the magic that you and I have spoken about. I mean, there is a whole, you know, world of love magic. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that we've looked at from indigenous cultures around the world. Uh, it, it also gets to the heart of, of some very, very pragmatic kind of paralinguistic things of inflection, tone, uh, and, and a, a sense of, of cooperative uh, growth, you know, that mm -hmm. is really, I mean, that's why we have 7.8 billion people on the planet, you mm -hmm. know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really... It, 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 in some ways, it's not a mystery. Um, what I think is mysterious is that we have more of an idea today, certainly in America, of uh, males and females being pitted against each other than, than we've ever had. And I, I think that is a very, very strange development of, of the modern age. That well, that is interesting. But what I, I keep going back to the book of Genesis, and I don't know. <laughs> it feels like the past few episodes I've always gone back there. But we do have Adam and Eve. Do you think that there's a sort of that that's maybe not as recent as we might think? I mean, it seems to go back pretty far in terms of our origin stories. Do you mean conflict? Yeah, conflict. Right. Uh, well, look, I'm sure not. I mean, I, I think that it, it, it always has has been. I mean, there are many ways to phrase that binary. Mm -hmm. uh, Plato gave us another, you know, we, we, we know that there is. Uh, I mean, one thought is that because we have tried to tamper with that binary, uh, with intersectionality and non-binary views, I mean, could that be part of the problem? Maybe. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe. I, I think, though, where, where the problem lies is the expansion uh, in societal terms beyond the family single roof line level where people are living far more complicated networked uh, existences oftentimes connecting with people that they've never met. Mm -hmm. um, and we've confused the notion of intimacy, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, the Dunbar number exists for a reason. And for listeners yeah. who don't know the Dunbar number, that's the amount of people you can actually know within your circle. If I remember correctly, it's 140 that you can actually know. And then everybody after that is kind of a face with a name tag that you have to kind of really work hard to remember but it might be it might be lower than that but no i i think that the complexity angle is is really big here and i wonder what what i wonder about is that this rise in complexity 
of relationships, this web of relationships that we all have now due to social media. And, you know, you said there's 200 people living in your building. While you might not know each and every one of them, that is in itself a complex web of very different people from very different places. 11, you know, non-English as a first language speaking people. So, but what I'm curious about is the seeming tension between this idea, this multicultural uh, complexity with, with solipsism, you know, like, I, I wonder how, mm. how those two come, does the ever expanding complexity of this force, force is the wrong word, inspire people to turn more inwards? Are these two completely separate things? Because I agree with you in terms of when there is a, a kind of smaller, perhaps more homogenous community that that community becomes almost an extension of a, of a person. Rudolf Steiner has this great way of describing the souls of dogs as there being a hand, and and the hand itself is the is the soul of a dog, and the fingers are the individual dogs themselves. And I, hmm. I I like thinking of that metaphor in terms of how small communities of people work, where that community becomes the hand. And each person becomes one of the one of the fingers. And I'm wondering if there's a way that by expanding, like by having multiple hands, you lose sight of the fingers. See, the metaphor becomes very muddy once we try to move outside of it. But I'm I'm wondering about that connection between navel gazing and interiority and self obsession and narcissism and ever expanding ever ever more complex communities well i think that's a really great uh you know way to think of things and i think it is a very peculiar uh oppositional problem because there's no doubt about it that that uh we have on the one hand um this tremendous sense of kind of being overcrowded uh information overload and yet you know, it was back in the 1950s, the lonely crowd uh, was, was, you know, one of the big sociological works of the time. And, and there is this tremendous sense of, of, of loneliness. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very odd. Um, I mean, the way I think of it is that um, I use the, the, the term self-esteem problems. That's what I see as being the fundamental uh, phenomenon of, of social media. I think it, it is just this massive self-esteem problem that has yeah. now found the mechanisms to express itself. And I, I'm not sure where that comes from. I, I mean, I think that, that one of the questions for you as a new parent is how you're going to build uh, Gus's self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you going to build an integrity of self that doesn't, frankly, become a problem for everyone that he will meet thereafter, right, right, and, and, right, including yeah. you? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where it comes from. Where where this this crisis of self-esteem? Uh, I think that that we have uh, gotten too big. As a, as a society, I think there is something about uh, simply trying to know more people than you can really know. I, mm-hmm. Maybe that is 
the whole thing. I don't know. You mentioned the lonely crowd and this problem with self-esteem and also social media, which puts all of this together in the form of a question that I've been thinking about for some time on Twitter. The biggest accounts, the people who are biggest on Twitter, and if we think about Twitter as this perpetual uh, narcissism machine, narcissism that goes hand in hand with self-deprecation and uh, nihilism, the best tweeters all seem to be from New York City and Los Angeles, from these big, <laughs> these big cities. Do you see what I'm getting at there? How how it's it's interesting that people from small towns with tight knit communities just don't seem to really click with social media. But people who are in these big, I remember when I was house sitting in Brooklyn, and I would walk out uh, in in Bed Stuy. And there would be people kind of shouting at each other from across the street. I guess they knew each other. I remember how that was some of the most profoundly lonely feelings I've had <laughs> in my in my life was actually in New York City, surrounded by people. So there's something there. There's something to this. I think there is something there. Um, well, I mean, w when you lay it out like that now. Um, well, let, let, let's just be clear. Are you the first part was people who are living? Let's just talk about America for the for the moment. Yeah. Are we saying that people who do live in tight knit face to face communities, uh, rural or or not, uh, are less likely to to be on social media? Is that part one of this? Yes, more more clearly, I think they're more likely to to be successful at the game of social media, at fulfilling the roles demanded by social media, which is to be uh, detached, nihilistic, self-absorbed, etc. Okay, so and people from major centers, whether it's New York, L.A., or Chicago, or mm -hmm. wherever. Are they are more likely to be mm -hmm. tuned in to tuned, social media? Tuned in, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, you know, it, there was a time when, um, I mean, you and I don't drink anymore, but there was a time when the neighborhood bar was kind of, or a diner for people, you know, whatever, um, where that was the social media of its time. And I haven't had that kind of a, a local uh, place in, well, since I've returned to America, really. Um, I, I wouldn't know where to go to do that in face-to-face -face terms. And I wonder if that isn't part, and I think this is, has nothing to do with COVID, COVID has obviously made that very challenging for us all. But even before that, uh, I, I didn't really have a place. Um, well, think of that, that television show, Cheers, you know? I yeah, mean, right. I, I, that, that really struck a nerve for a lot of people about feeling welcome and feeling uh, at home. I can't even remember what the tagline was, but... Uh, that sense of like this is your place. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
where are those places anymore? Yeah, no, absolutely. When I first moved to Norman, when I was 23, there were a bunch of bars that I would go to with a buddy of mine, and he just kind of became my drinking buddy, and we got to know the bartenders. We would spend hours talking to the bouncer at one of these bars. It was a really fascinating former OU football player, but there was definitely a feeling of there being a kind of community there because you would see familiar faces, and as the night went on, you'd rotate tables, you know, you'd play musical chairs with all these people and kind of talk to them. Um, I guess... Sorry, I'm getting a little distracted because my dog is having some kind of freak out. Yeah, I, you know, I just live in complete chaos. <laughs> I just live in, uh, in, uh, in utter chaos at all times. But I guess we got onto this topic because initially we were talking about how uh, language came out of this conflict between men and women, and then we moved from that to this idea of community. So I wanted to pivot back to your original point, which I think is a good one, and that is that the idea of language coming from uh, from tension and difference and the the need to be able to maybe articulate things that are different from from ourselves from I guess a fundamentally non self-absorbed and narcissistic place you think that's that's fair to say I, I think that is. I think that's how we have managed to build any sense of sociology or community at all, because we really did have to work cooperatively. Um, we had to uh, use all of the, the, the tools that language and concept um, put forward. And, and I think tone of voice is, is, is one major thing. I mean, when I was thinking of this uh, woman that I, 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 I just love her voice. Right. You know, and I think that's really important. I can't do that. I think I have an interesting voice for a male. I can sing okay. Uh, not really, but yeah, I can. But I, no one's going to fall in love with my voice. Um, and I think that, that that is one of the things that um, at least heterosexual men, you know, enjoy very much about women. Um, it is something, uh, it's soothing, it's seductive, it's, it's also why female anger is so powerful. So I think there's an enormous amount of stuff going on that built the idea of community up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in, in very pure language terms because that had to start somewhere, you know. It really did. It, it, there's no way just to, I don't know, throw rocks, you know, <laughs> beat on clubs and stuff like that. I mean, right. and I think it's also connected with uh, an inherent connection with music, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, with the connection to music that co so that comes out of music being also generated by this conflict between sexes i think so i yeah, think that yeah. i think that can be really looked at in many many ways mm -hmm. um and and if you th i mean it it the, the positive side mm -hmm. is, is harmony i mean mm -hmm. what a radical idea that is who thought of that mm -hmm. you know um, particularly if you've got really different registers of voice. Um, 
So at some point, people in, I think, relatively small communities started to get the idea of, well, the delight aspect rather than the terror and anger side mm -hmm. of being able to work together to make uh, oral traditions possible and, and really generally, you know, truly communicative, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, uh, all, all of this that you're saying, I'm writing down in my notebook because I'm connecting threads as we're talking here. So we've talked about how music comes out of an attempt to interact with, the, with something that is outside of the self uh, language having its roots in paranoia is fundamentally a way of interpreting and expressing a, a fear or terror response, as you would say, with the outside world. Language also could potentially come from love, which fundamentally involves a connection with someone outside of yourself. And we've said in previous episodes, and we both believe that words are in fact magic and generative in and of themselves, and I believe that these ideas all link together to answer perhaps a question that we, that we have about today, today's society. Is it possible then that where a lot of this, a lot of this comes from, and I promise I'm, I'm getting somewhere, I'm always very conscious when I talk too much, but when you're in a city, and we said that you know that people who are in a city are are very good at social media at being solipsistic and narcissistic and self self absorbed all this kind of stuff. You get that way because you're in such a large area with such a diversity of people that you feel compelled to stand out and to use language to build an identity around yourself that separates you from the cacophony and and manic otherness of what's around you but could the problem actually be that our language our magic our spells are all focused inward now rather than on expressing what's outside of ourself i think that is exactly right and i think that uh, the, i mean the way i would think about it is that um I think living in the midst of uh, thousands and, and even millions of people allows us to shut off our awareness, to shut off our alertness. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we don't have to use language as a searching tool. I mean, think about this for a moment. And anyone you know who's ever been out camping can, uh, can identify with this. Say you're out with girlfriend or wife and you're cooking dinner and suddenly you see headlights or some people come if they're hiking i mean your first instinct is to try to work out what what's the intent here you know mm -hmm. do are these people friendly uh are they like you know my neighbors uh, i mean what's going on so you're forced to use language in a way of trying to negotiate that terror or delight, uh, that anger or love binary, you know, it, it's an oscillation there and you have to be careful. Uh, so you have to be alert. And I think that what uh, living in the midst of huge populations 
it means we shut off, you know, we're, we're tuned into something else. We're tuned into social media. We're tuned into uh, Netflix. We're tuned into, you know, whatever. And, and we don't pay attention to what's going on because, you know, I guess we feel like, well, uh, well, I don't know. We can call the cops. We can do, you know, there are all sorts mm-hmm. of other avenues that can, that can free us from having to be alert and looking after ourselves. But when we don't look after ourselves, and this is what I think your point is uh, in this episode, which I think is really interesting, that's when the narcissism, the solipsism, the nihilism kicks in. Mm. Yeah, that's well said. That's definitely what I was getting at. I think what's interesting about this is that I feel like from your starting point of language being based in paranoia and then adding the extra bit of love, it, it, it leads to a practical idea that I think is actionable in that you, you actually did in a, in a practical tip in a previous episode. You remember the, the practical tip that you did about substituting your pronouns for the third, the third person right? Yeah. Of actually thinking of yourself in the third person, that might be even more valuable than initially, initially thought, which I thought it was pretty valuable to begin with. But you see what I mean? I, I think I'm going to actually try this in my, in my day-to-day life. I'm going to, because to get a little personal recently, I've been thinking in my head, you know, I'm doing the stay-at-home dad thing and this fucking weather messed up my cars and <laughs> and I've had to you right. know fix all this stuff and I I said to Rios today I said I feel like I am stuck between all of these immovable forces you know what happens when 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 I clash up against these completely immovable objects right and they don't move and I'm being forced to mold myself to the shape of the world around me. <clears throat> but you see how many times I just said I while I was mm-hmm. explaining that to you? Well, that, that, that's, that's, that's something... That's the fucking that, problem right there, isn't it? It is the problem. It is the problem. And it's very, very peculiar. It's a very difficult habit to break. You have to work very hard to get some, some, you know, kind of an aerial view of yourself or a little bit of triangulation. Um, and that's what all the practical tips are really about, is trying to get a little bit of aerial view or, uh, you know, a couple of different reference points. Tri- triangulation is a great map reading term. Um, and it, it, you have to really work at it. But, yeah, <coughs> everyone understands that. It really, really is... Uh, so we end up driving ourselves crazy because we've got this I in our head all of the time. Right. Um, and, and then we wonder, well, why is identity, self-esteem, narcissism, all of these kind of things merging together in social media terms that we've just been talking about? Why? Well, because we are driving ourselves insane. You know, through separation, through actual yeah. separation, 
in whereas language could be seen its initial purpose could be seen as a beautiful metaphor bridge between members of a community it's now being used to wall off individuals the most cursed word of the 21st century <laughs> it's being used to wall off individuals into ever more exacting and particular marketing categories that but, but the thing is is that we, we do we're doing it to ourselves it's not being done to us we are doing it to ourselves and we can stop at any time you can get off the ride at any time i could wake up tomorrow and make the decision to not think about me and and my lot in life i could i could do that and i think i will well you know it, it is worth remembering i think um someone like marshall McLuhan, who uh before you know he became overexposed as as joseph campbell was i mean he wrote a really great book about uh the gutenberg galaxy about the effect of print and how it uh mashed and flattened you know how we've often talked about the flattening of affect uh and i think that that's that's was the start of it and we need to get back to a more active and magical sense of language where we're really looking at it very, very closely. I mean, here's just a simple question. And anyone can have an answer. I mean, there is no right answer. But would you say the scent of a wet carrot or the smell of a wet carrot? I would say the scent. Okay, why? Because scent is a kinder word. It's nicer. Smell brings to mind body odor, uh, something rotting. A smell is a problem, and a scent is something to be delighted in. Okay, okay. That's a good rhetorical argument back. I'll, I'll take that. I didn't have an answer to that. But my point is, I think, too, that we need to be interrogating and prosecuting language all of the time and not just these uh you know hot button topic words which i mean that's the thing that annoys me about the the mainstream media today it flags uh a bunch well maybe not even a bunch about 10 words mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we have just nonsense code words for them uh and everybody knows what those are um but we stop listening, we stop hearing, we stop reacting and, and using language as a search tool um, because we're, we're so you know, anxious about a, really a few quarantined words, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we shut down our whole language perception mechanism, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, actually a good place to stop for this episode. I want to pick this up next time uh, because there's so much practical good stuff in this one to think about and to continue on with. But I think it's time to get to our segments. I like. I do. Okay. Well, like. take us to the river. Okay. So we're in the river. There's three people in the boat and I'm the guide. 
Right. The three people in the river, there's a man. He is from Oklahoma. He's a conservative. He's a Republican. Uh, He is long, long hair, trucker cap, flannel shirt, athletic, what have you. The other person is a woman, and the person who's coming to mind is if Paris Hilton was a liberal (laughs) New Yorker, right? So kind of airy, kind of maybe a little dumb, but, you know, she's, she's the kind of person who is currently choosing kindness in our society, right? The third person is a documentarian with a camera. And he's, he's, he's shooting a show where he puts people of opposite political ideas in a boat together just to, to, to kind of see what happens. And he's filmed 15 episodes of this. He's gotten some great drama on camera. But what he doesn't know, what he doesn't know is that this river is actually a mythical river of truth. And if you drink mm. from the river of truth, you have to tell the truth. So he's he's loving it. He's lo- when we're going over rapids, and they're kind of yelling at each other because the man grew up in the country and he he understands how the physical world works, and so he's able to manipulate the boat properly with my direction, and she's not not really able to. So they have this great kind of uh, jewel of the Nile. Uh, sort of back and forth going on. Um, was that the right movie, the one with Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner? That's the one I'm thinking. Yeah, of. yeah. Um, romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. That's yeah. Romancing the Stone is the one I was trying to think of. But yeah, the Jewel of the Nile is the is the sequel. But then they get to a part of the river where it's very docile. It's very placid, right? And I tell them about the River of Truth, and everybody decides to drink from it. And when the man and the woman drink from the river of truth, the only thing that comes out of their mouth is the most filthy, erotic stuff that you could possibly (laughs) imagine. Because this whole time, they just desperately, desperately want to fuck each other. The whole, the whole trip. That's just, it's just been this oozing, bubbling sexual tension. And so the problem guy, the documentarian, he drinks from the river of truth. (laughs) And it turns out... It turns out that he is deeply in love with his camera. So, so we leave him. We leave him there on the bank, and we paddle off, and we come back a year later, and we find that he has constructed a body out of sticks and grass, and he has placed the camera where the head should be, and he has begun a little cargo cult life with his camera. <laughs> oh my. And we all uh, and we all drink some beers and hang out and uh, everybody lives happily ever after. The man and the woman have three children and go to the grave bickering about shallow dumb bullshit political ideas that nobody cares about. And uh, unfortunately, the man uh, in the woods with his camera uh, dies of consumption three years later. But he had a he had a good he had a good run. 
Wow, well, I can see his creation. That was a really beautiful visualization. Uh, you, you always uh, delight and surprise. Uh, uh, that, that's very well done. I, I enjoyed that thoroughly. Um, Thanks. Okay, well, practical tip. Uh, this, this is, again, uh, I'm always trying to do things that are really simple. Uh, David knows that I... Uh, get a little bit tense with that phrase, we choose kindness. Uh, kind of got on my last nerve when I was in Seattle and I kept seeing these little stupid signs on everyone's lawn. But, but here's an idea that I work with with my students because I think we all have some exposure to the idea of extraterrestrials, aliens. Uh, we've seen them in movies, TV, re we read about them. And it, it's a really good exercise to try to imagine what uh, aliens would really be like. Uh, and I've talked about this in, in this series before. Are they, in fact, a separate race of individuals? Are they some sort of composite uh, individual entity? Uh, this is something I talk about with my students. But I want you to think of any kind of slogan that is getting traction in our society today. It could be, we choose kindness. It could be, Black Lives Matter. It could be, make America great again. Whatever, okay? All of these memes and slogans. Try to think, what would they mean if they were coming from an alien race, entity, what would that mean? What would that mean today? It's another way of seeing these things uh, from a different point of view. I mean, take We Choose Kindness. If, uh, if the alien or aliens arrived tomorrow and that was what they were saying, what would that mean? How would you feel about it? How does that change? And, and we need to, to get that aerial view about language. We need to triangulate a little bit. So we break up these cliches. Cliches and pop phrases and media fodder are, uh, they're important because we're surrounded by them all the time. We'd end up taking them for granted we stop hearing them, we stop uh, really investigating them, and we need an angle to do that. So, so call on the aliens, you know, call mm -hmm. on the aliens. That's, that's my, uh, my tip for the week. That's amazing. I think that if aliens told me we choose kindness, I would be scared shitless. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is my feeling. Exactly. I would think, oh no, please let us live. <laughs> yeah, know? run away, run away. I, I would exactly. That is that is the, the the point here, and it's. I think, uh, and you can apply this across any phrase that is, uh, you know, trucked out in in the media or social media. And you think, huh. Uh, maybe that I don't think that makes me feel too comfortable <laughs> and if we accept as I do that we are run by at least spiritually metaphorically 
alien lizard people, the practical tip becomes more and more practical by the minute. Right. Well, that's my view too. Um, and I, I, I think that it, it is really, um, it, it's my biggest concern that, that there are, uh, you know, reptiles amongst us. I mean, there's no question about that in my view. Um, and there are interdimensional beings yeah. and, uh, but we can call on the spirits too. We can, we can call on the magic world, uh, to help us if, if we're willing to do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Chris, have you been having any dreams lately? Well, you know, I had, it was strange. It's the first time in a long time. And I think that, um, Perhaps the uh, the neighbor stress, perhaps this sort of realization that uh, I really have been in in love. Uh, I uh, I met my father mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time. He uh, he knocked on the door and he just he came right in, mm-hmm. and um, I said, you know, wait a minute. You died in 1984. And uh, he says, that's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't believe any of that sort of stuff. And I said, well, what are you doing back here? What gives? And he asked, am I not welcome? Um, who else is going to just walk in the door mm-hmm. uninvited? Uh, and I thought, oh. And he sat down and... There was this really intense scent of pine tree, like pine trees after a rain. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, okay. He didn't have much to say, but he certainly invited himself in. It's the first time, according to my dream index, I I keep pretty good dream records, this is the first time I've dreamed about him in almost 15 years. Hmm. So I'm not sure what it means. Uh, he was very calm. Uh, he looked better, much better than he did when you know he was dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and very just reasonable and rational. But that scent of, of, of pine tree after the rain, mm. wow. Mm. <laughs> Well, that is extremely interesting because my uh, dreams with my grandmother have a very similar, not pine tree scent, but a very um, floral, arboreal feel to them, which there's something, ah, there's something to that with the, the, the places that our spirits or souls or whatever you want to call them, however you want to think about it, where they, where they go after the physical body terminates uh there's got to be something to that some kind of mingling with um with nature or senses um that's very interesting well it's kind of you've shared you know um, a dmt experience and in this very concrete sense of some kind of other dimension i mean i've certainly had that uh i know some of our listeners have I just can't help but wonder if if we could get an aerial view of what's going on, if this whole maze or jigsaw puzzle or, or whatever it is 
just wouldn't look anything like what we think it does, you yeah, know? Right. Well, I th- yeah, I think that that really... Uh, I think that goes without saying. I mean, it has to. It fundamentally has to. And how funny it is that we think we have any ideas at all. It's fun to speculate on it, but I like the idea that your father said upon hearing from you that he was dead that's all nonsense Mm. the the casual dismissal of it is very much the way my uh my grandmother would speak to me too uh in dreams and in real life when she was alive this just this idea of like oh stop my grandmother always used to do that when i was acting foolish or i don't know having some kind of tantrum she had a brilliant way of just being able to say, cut it out. Right. And in those right. three well, that words, is exactly you know? the mood. yeah. In those three words, mm-hmm. it's like, it's it, get a grip, cut it out. These little three word phrases that just somehow work. You think, Oh, maybe I should cut it out. Maybe I should get a grip. <laughs> That's all nonsense. Well, I think that that sort of circles us back around to this whole notion of language and the importance of tone and the importance of intent and and sort of this paralinguistic idea of it isn't always the big concepts. It, it isn't that at all. It, it really is get a grip. It's uh, calm down. It's, uh, it's very intentional, very social. And its ultimate goal, I think, is is to always try to negotiate or that oscillation between terror and delight, between anger and love. Absolutely. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening to the No Country Podcast Patreon edition, soon to be only edition, which I'm very excited for Chris and I to get weird behind a paywall. I love, man, I can't stop thinking about, today I was just thinking about this, and I love that we have a semi-secret club now where we just talk about things that are interesting to us. And Chris and I are going to start putting all of this into a book, which I think is the perfect medium because I'll include this in the show notes, but Chris recently wrote a piece for his local NPR about bird watching. And it's just, it's a fascinating, what was that? Maybe a 500 word piece. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's just great. There are some people who are just just born wordsmiths, and we both came to the conclusion that uh, the current climate just unfortunately isn't right for for us as kind of boring, you know, straight white guys for fiction. But we might have a a place translating some of this into some pretty killer prose. So I'm just I'm just hyped. I'm hyped on life. Uh, or should I say, I guess David is hyped on life at the moment. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, we're, we're grateful to all listeners. Uh, Chris and David are very grateful. Uh, we've, Chris and David have more journey to embark on, uh, books, courses, all sorts of cool stuff. Thank you so much.